Bibles, please, to Galatians chapter 3. We'll read the entirety of the chapter. Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. Hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only would I learn of you, received ye the Spirit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Have ye suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit, and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law, or, or, the, or by the hearing of faith? Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham." And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant. Yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth nor addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one unto thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up to the faith which should afterward be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster, to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. 
For ye are all the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. Thomas Boston writes, The first period was at Adam's fall, when all mankind was newly ruined by the first sin. Then the mediator came and looked on the ruins of the world, Genesis 3.8, preached deliverance to the captives, verse 15, telling them that the seed of the woman should bruise the head of the serpent. He healed the brokenhearted by covering Adam and his wife with coats of skin. Verse 21, even the skins of sacrifices, a type of the righteousness of a slain redeemer. Thus he underpropped the world by his mediation when all was shaken loose by man's disobedience. He began immediately to repair the breach and kept the world from absolute and irreparable ruin. Well, it's well said. Certainly uh, good divinity pertaining to Genesis chapter 3. So, uh, seeing that we live in a, in a town or in, the, in what we call the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, where one of the greatest uh, seminaries that advocate uh, the uh, doctrine of dispensationalism uh, resides, uh, we often uh, teach on baptism when we have a baptism. And we do that because uh, infant baptism is not the majority report in Christianity today. Um, <clears throat> at least proper infant baptism. I mean, if we consider the Roman Catholic Church to be the greatest, uh, uh, numerically speaking, d- denomination of, quote, Christians in the world, well then, th- the infant baptism that they perform would outnumber all other baptisms, except that it's not baptism. They polluted that sacrament so that it is no baptism at all. Now, this kind of baptism that we, that, that we preach today, that you saw today, that is practiced in the Reformed confessional churches, is indeed uh, 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 the minority report as far as that sacrament is concerned across the visible church. So we preach on it. <clears throat> there, are a, there are a couple of biblical doctrines and a corollary to those doctrines that uh, find themselves present in the continuity of the administration of the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace is really the first doctrine that I want to talk with you about and show the continuity of it over the scriptures. The covenant of grace is, a, is, a, um, is an expression, a temporal expression, an outflowing, if you will, of a pre-temporal covenant that was made between the Father and the Son and the Spirit pertaining to the elect of God. Uh, You won't hear much about, quote, covenant theology in Arminian churches. And the reason you don't hear a lot about covenant theology is because they don't have any confidence in a pre-temporal covenant. They have more confidence in the human will than in God's sovereignty. So it is a, it is a, 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 um, a unique 
doctrine among us Reformed churches. And even among the Reformed, there are various disagreements as to what it it exactly looks like. Um, We we won't take time to go into those today, but there is, uh, we are not sadly monolithic in our understanding of the covenant of grace. But there are two covenants that take place in time, the covenant of grace and the covenant of works. Most of you know that. And that Adam, in his estate of innocency, came under a covenant of works, a covenant of human performance, if you will. That you have to obey God in order uh, to enjoy his favor. That the favor of God is suspended upon whether or not you obey him. And so the best man, uh, a man that was innocent, put in a situation of bestness in a garden with every supply and free access to God fell. And when he fell, he ruined not only uh, the world around him, but he ruined all of his posterity. We sinned in him and fell with him in that first transgression. Romans 5.12 makes that clear. When we talk about the covenant of grace then, we are talking about recovery from the effects of the covenant of works and its being broken. That while the entire human race now is under condemnation and ought, legally speaking, to be punished eternally, that the Lord is pleased in time to make a second covenant. That's how we put it in our confession. And we call it the covenant of grace because... It is completely void of human performance in its success. It is all of God. Sometimes we'll use the word synergism and monergism. And those are just fancy words which means are we cooperating with God in our salvation with some effort and strength of our own? Or do we confess that God alone is the one at work and we the happy recipients of that work as passives only? And when we talk about the covenant of grace, we're talking about the latter. That recovery from the ruin of our race is only found in the covenant of grace. And in the covenant of grace, several things must come to the fore that there, there, there must be a mediator, there must be a sacrifice, there must be a penalty paid, there must be uh, a kind of uh, recovery, regeneration, conversion. We talk about those kinds of things in the covenant of grace, all as gifts from God. Faith, repentance, sanctification, justification. These are all God's gifts that he gives. Adoption. And so on. None of them are earned by us. None of them are purchased by us. None of them are procured by us. These are things that God works in us alone. He is the alone worker in that. Now, once God changes our hearts, do we ourselves believe? Yes, 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 yes. We do believe. We do call upon His name. We are sanctified as persons, yes. That's true. But when we uh, benefit with those benefits, we give God all the glory and none of it pertains to us because it is truly all His work in us in that time. So in Titus 1-2, we hear about a promise that was made before the world began of eternal life. That there was a promise of eternal life that was made 
before the world began. Well, that cannot pertain to the covenant of works. Otherwise, that promise would be broken. But it does pertain to the covenant of grace. The, the second doctrine that I want to talk to you about is that there is this doctrine of the visible church, that God has chosen, God has determined, God has decreed to deal with the human race in an open and objective way uh, to work these subjective and invisible things into the heart of his elect, the hearts of his elect people. And the doctrine of the visible church, I, I think, is a, is, a, is a doctrine that is highly misunderstood today in many quarters in Christianity. And then the corollary to these two doctrines is that since we believe it, if we can show that the covenant of grace was established just outside the garden after Adam fell, that because it is that same covenant of grace, we should see a kind of continuity from that age even to our own, seeing that it is the same covenant. That's not to deny uh, discontinuity. There is some discontinuity. There is, if you will, the seed, the sprout, the plant, the tree, and the fruit. There is growth in the covenant of grace. There is an advancement to the ideology. The Lord did not break out the fullness of his covenant uh, in the garden. But he did begin to open it up. And then in every subsequent administration of it, in the days of Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and then finally the new covenant in Christ, he brought it to its fullness. But at every glimpse, at every station along the way, there was some advancement and some preservation of the continuity. It doesn't mean that there was no Change. There were changes that were made. In fact, some of our beloved brethren would make such changes as we don't recognize in Scripture. Big, sweeping changes. There are great changes. And so I want to show you some of those things as we move along today. We're going to start in the garden. We're going to try to get through David by the end of this sermon. And that means we're going to go at racing speed. So uh, get out your liquid-cooled pencils. And we'll begin in Genesis chapter 3. There's a fall that takes place in Genesis chapter 3. That's what we call it. We call it the fall. And Mr. Boston has already helped us to explicate what is going on here, to, to expose what is going on in Genesis chapter 3. What did he say? He said that as soon as the ruin of mankind came, the mediator interposed himself. The mediator being Christ. And so Christ came and appeared to Abraham and to, I'm sorry, to Adam and to Eve. And they were uh, hiding, right, in their shame from God. And God drew them out from their shame and, and asked them these drawing questions to help them to recognize their sin and that they were lost and that there was no help in themselves to recover themselves out of that lost condition. And whereas at one time they enjoyed the company of God in the wind of the day, the most comfortable part of their lives, now they could not bear his presence. They couldn't bear to stand before him. And so God brings them back into his presence. And he does several things. And 
There are several things that we'll have to skip over, but a few things that we cannot skip over. And that is that he erects, at that point, an outward ceremony. And what was that ceremony that the Lord himself performed and erected that day? The principle of substitutionary sacrifice. And so, God had told Abraham, you're going to die when you eat that. Adam, excuse me. God told Adam, you're going to die when you eat that. And Adam is standing there, called out by God, ready to be struck dead. And what does God do? He kills an animal instead in his presence. And then takes the skin of that animal and puts it on to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve. And tears off their own concoction to cover their shame. You see, those are deep and rich actions that God takes to show what he's going to do eventually in time. But he doesn't leave it there, does he? No. He separates humanity at that point. He separates humanity into the seed of the woman and into the seed of the serpent. And he says that in the seed of the woman, the blessing is going to come. And that blessing will come in the form of a champion who will not fall to the wiles of the tempter, but instead will crush him with his heel. He himself bearing injury at some point. Now that's a, that's a dark saying. And yet, having 6,000 years of light in Scripture, we might understand that this is speaking of the cross of Christ and that at the cross of Christ, Jesus would suffer on our behalf. He would be that sacrificial animal that is, clothed, that is clothing Adam and Eve at that point. He would be that antitype to which that type pointed and in so doing, the power of the devil would be indeed crushed at that point. So what do we have? What are the elements that endure according to what the Lord set forth here? What are the enduring elements of this proto-evangelium, as as it's often called by theologian upon theologian? Well, first we have the principle of a substitutionary atonement. Second, we have the, uh, the clothing of shame that is removed the self-righteousness, and then we have the clothing with the animal as our substitute. That there is a righteousness not our own. Uh, That in order for it to, to accrue, to actually benefit the seed, the seed must receive it. They must believe it. In other words, faith is the condition, and we'll see that, Uh, in their first generation after. What did Adam and Eve believe about this? Well, we don't have a lot of information, but we have a little bit. The Lord said to Adam and Eve that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Eve then conceives and bears a son. You remember what she named him? Cain. We don't know what Cain means. We don't speak Hebrew. Let me tell you what it means. It means, I have acquired him. 
She gave birth in hope that in her seed would be the champion. Oh, she may not know much about the champion, but she knows he's coming, and she evinces her faith in the birth of Cain, doesn't she? That there is a hope that belongs to her. And then she has a second son, and she names him Abel, which means grief, sorrow, havel. And why, why would she name her son Havel, grief or sorrow? Some commentators are want to say because she saw what kind of a man Cain was, that she didn't have the son that she thought she had after all. Well, I think that's at least a possibility. Hard to be dogmatic on things like that, but it's at least a possibility, isn't it? We learn from 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, that Cain, from the beginning, was what? Of the evil one. He belonged to the serpent's seed rather than the seed of the woman. And from Hebrews 11, we also learn that Abel belonged to the seed of the woman. That she had it backwards in her naming. That Abel was truly the blessed one and Cain was the grieved one. Yet these principles are clear, especially with, like I said, 6,000 years of gospel light to shed on those things. So the continuity then is what? Well, the continuity with this administration of the covenant of grace is we still have the principle of substitution. Sacrifice will go on. We see that in chapter 4. We still have the principle of, of giving ourselves to God by faith, right? Believing in Him. We see that in Abel and we see that in, um, in Eve. And I would say we see it in Adam, although, uh, you know, it's not said specifically of him. I believe it's implied in him. But then also, what do we have? We have this principle, like I said, of the visible church, that God deals with the human race in a churchly way. And when I say a churchly way, that means that all men are required to come and worship God and to come to that place where God is worshipped that they might be taught of God and hear what they're supposed to understand. And so in, the, in that first little family there, probably not little, probably thousands upon thousands, um, Cain and Abel, <clears throat> in the next chapter, what are, what are they doing? They're bringing their sacrifice. Notice that in that principle of church visibility, even in the very beginning, both come to bring sacrifice, but only one is a man of faith. The other is a man of the devil. Because we ought to expect that in the visible church, that's what we're going to have. All right, well, I don't have a lot of time to go beyond what we've done. Let's move on to Noah here then. There are a few other things that could be said, but this is good for continuity's sake. What happens in chapter 6? Well, men began to multiply upon the face of the earth, and the, the seed of the woman begins to mingle with the seed of the serpent. Right? The sons of God look at the daughters of men, that they are fair. They take them for wives. We've, we've, we've heard about that before, um, you know, that someone is pretty or, or someone is handsome. That may be a consideration, but it cannot be the consideration. It becomes the consideration in chapter 6, and the world is filled with violence, right? Those of you that will be seeking mates or are seeking mates, seek a godly one, seek a believing one, right? 
Uh, be careful of the waters in which you fish. You don't know what you're going to bring up. And so on. Okay, so in that day then the Lord reveals that he's going to destroy the entirety of the world. And so Noah is commanded to build the ark, right? And so we'll fast forward through the ark past the flood to chapter 8. Notice that there is still the principle of sacrifice going on. And that the savor of that sacrifice is something that is smelled by God who has no nostrils. Right? What does it say? It says, verse 20, And Noah built an altar unto the Lord, and took every clean beast, and every clean fowl, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Just like Abel did, right? The principle of sacrifice is maintained. It's contiguous. The covenant of grace involves sacrifice. Pointing to Christ. The Lord smelled the sweet savor and said in his heart, I will not curse the ground anymore for man's sake. Smelling the savor of Christ in that sacrifice. So the principle of sacrifice remains and all of its import. Dedication to God and uh, covering with a covering. Substitutionary atonement and so on. What else is contiguous here? That man approaches God on the basis of that substitution, right? Noah builds that altar as soon as he gets out of the ark. He doesn't think himself favored to the point that he doesn't need a sacrifice. He is favored, but he's favored in light of that sacrifice, not instead of it. The sacrifices, beloved, never atoned. The blood of bulls and goats never take away sin. But Noah believed God. He had that faith that is contiguous with what Abel and Eve had. Uh, in Hebrews 11, we heard that Noah became an heir of the righteousness which is by faith. And so this is still a part of the covenant of grace. And notice also that we have a sign of that covenant. It's not an enduring sign in that it, it will be like in the days of Abraham. It's not performed upon the people. It's God's own commitment. The battle bow is pointed upward. So God says, as I live, this covenant will continue. And then again, we have the principle of the visible church in that there were eight members of it that the world was reduced to at that time. Eight lone survivors. And yet we know that at least one of them was an unbeliever and cursed. Ham and Canaan. We also know that God graciously, and this is an advancement of the idea. Notice as we look to the end of chapter 9, verse 25, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he will dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. And so God is going to dwell in the tents of Shem. Notice that there is, a, there is yet a division among the people of God. Notice that in the days of Eve, she had two sons and there was a division between them. In the days of Noah, he had three sons and there was a division between them. And that there was a son of his called Shem. Shem. 
And God said that he would commune with the Shemites, that he will dwell in the tents of Shem. It's not Japheth dwelling in the tents of Shem. The near antecedent in the Hebrew is that God is dwelling in the tents of Shem. So we have faith and communion with God. We have sacrifice. All of these things. And we have the, the, the seed and a division of the seed. All of these things are continuous here between the family of Adam and the family of Noah. Then we turn to Abraham. Really hustling here. We'll turn to Genesis 17. And in chapter 17, the Lord specifically says, verse 2, I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Avram, but thy name shall be called Avraham. That is from, uh, from a father of uh, from exalted father, right? Lifted up. Ram means to lift up. Avram, lifted up father, to Avraham, that is a father of many, many. And I will make thee exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of thee. Kings shall come of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art as a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. This is my covenant, which ye shall keep between me and you and thy seed after thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin. And it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you. Every man child in your generations. He that is born in the house or bought with money of any stranger which is not of thy seed. And so on. All right, so we come to this advancement of the covenant idea now. What are the contiguous ideas first? The contiguous ideas are that the covenant is made with Abraham and his seed as it was made according to Eve and her seed, and it was made according to Noah and his seed, right? God will dwell in the tents of Shem. My covenant will be with the Shemites. Um, there's going to be a seed of the serpent and a seed of the woman. And notice that there's a further revelation, a further narrowing of this. And now we see it here in Abraham that not all of the seed of Noah will, will carry that covenant lineage, but the seed of Abraham will. We obviously have the principle of faith in Abraham, like we had it in Eve and Abel and Noah. That continues. The principle of sacrifice still continues. Abraham, many times in his life, erected an altar and offered sacrifice to God. <coughs> now we have the addition of a sign upon not only the infant seed, but also upon those that will join themselves to the covenant. It is so replete among the people of God that God will even say, this is my covenant. Every man child among you shall be circumcised. You're strangers, your sons. If you buy someone to have a slave in your house, 
you will circumcise him. He becomes a part of this believing household. You will circumcise him. You will teach him the ways of Jehovah. And so we have the principle of the seed and the nurture of the seed in Abraham. In Genesis chapter 18, the Lord will speak to Abraham and what will he tell him? Well, he will tell him that, that he will fulfill all that the Lord has promised to him. How? By the way he and his seed nurture their children in the ways of the Lord. Genesis 18, 18. That the plan of God for the advancement of his kingdom in this world is the plan to do it through believing families that they will nurture their children. Listen to what it says. Verse 18, Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and that all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, for I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. Beloved, Christian nurture, here in verse, verses 18 and 19, certainly plays an extremely large part in the advancement of God's saving purpose. The Lord says, I'm going to bring up, uh, upon Abraham everything I promised him. How? By the way he raises his children and the way his, by, by the way his children raise their children, to teach the ways of the Lord. And the Hebrew here is emphatic. Let me give you maybe a more accurate translation. For I know him in order that he will command his children and his household after him. And they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment in order that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. This is a purposive uh, verb that, or sorry, uh, conjunction that the Lord uses here. It's purposive. In order that. Okay. All right, so very clearly then, but, but we might be tempted to say, yeah, but we come to the New Testament, Pastor, and we hear in, Genesis, in, in Galatians chapter 5 that if you're circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. And so we have a different sign, we have a different covenant in the New Testament. Well, hold up a minute. Let's, let's talk about that for just a moment. Turn with me to Romans chapter 2. I'm going to argue, beloved, that the, that the principle of circumcision remains, although circumcision itself now being identified as a self-righteous badge of a perverted Jewish religion must cease. But the principle of circumcision remains. Notice what it says in verse, well, let's see, 22. Thou sayest that a man should not, thou that sayest a man uh, should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast of the law through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, as it is written, For circumcision verily profiteth if thou keep the law. But if thou be a breaker of the law, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. Therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteousness of the law. Shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? And shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, judge thee who by the letter and circumcision dost transgress the law? For he is not a Jew 
which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men but of God. What is Paul saying here in Romans 2? He's saying that the principle of circumcision remains even if circumcision doesn't. The principle of circumcision is what then? It is to have, as Jeremiah 4 says and as Deuteronomy 30 says, a circumcised heart, a witness in the inner man that God has done a work there. No surgeon can circumcise a heart. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Verse 1, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you. To me, indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision, which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Did you hear what Paul said there? May I say it this way, beloved? Circumcision has not gone away in the New Testament. It has taken up a different guise instead. It is put in its true colors. What does it take, beloved, to be circumcised in the days of the New Testament? What does Paul say here? To worship God in the Spirit, to rejoice in Christ Jesus, and to put no confidence in the flesh. Beloved, if you do that, you're circumcised. It's interesting to think about it that way, isn't it? Yet Paul speaks in that first century context in exactly that way. The same one who said, If you are circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing, also gave us the proper way to understand and receive the circumcision of God. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Sorry, chapter 2. Verse 8. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. Circumcision remains. In fact, now circumcision is given a fuller understanding that it is that the circumcision of Christ is being buried with him in baptism. So very often we hear that you know circumcision has passed away and there's a sense in which it has. Circumcision is no longer an outward religious rite to be performed on Jewish males at the eighth day of their lives. That's true. But the principle of circumcision remains. And we would expect that. Why? Because we're still 
experiencing. We're still under. We're still moving forward in the same covenant of grace. What was circumcision for Abraham? Turn with me to Romans 4. Paul will quote from Psalm 32, verse 6, Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also, and the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith our father Abraham had, or of our father Abraham, which he had, being yet uncircumcised. For the promise that he should be heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Beloved, what was circumcision to Abraham? It was a sign and seal of the righteousness that God imputed to him by faith alone. Is it any different for us? Is the circumcision that we've seen in three instances now, three instances, right? Not, not one. Romans 2, Philippians 3, Colossians 2. Is that circumcision any different from Abraham's circumcision? And the answer is yes. It is different only in that it is not performed outwardly upon us. Every other thing about Abraham's circumcision remains. Every other thing. Is it still a sign of the righteousness of faith? That is circumcision. The circumcision is spoken of in Philippians 3. Right? That worship those who worship God in the spirit those who rejoice in Christ Jesus, and those who put no confidence in the flesh? Is that still circumcision? It is. Was it circumcision for Abraham? It was. In fact, Jesus himself explicitly said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He rejoiced in Christ. We've already read in Galatians 3 that the Apostle Paul uh, told us that Abraham heard the preaching of the gospel. So while there, so the, there is some expansion here in the days of Abraham. And those expansions are contiguous with our own age, beloved. In, in the passage that we read, Galatians 3, the Apostle Paul will make that so clear that he will say, as he did in Romans 4, that Abraham is the father of all who believe. He will say that if you are 
If you, are, uh, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. So we have the same things we saw in Adam and in Noah, and now we have some expansion. And that expansion in the sign of the covenant continues. But as we saw in Colossians chapter 2, the apostle will relate the sign of circumcision with baptism, being buried with Christ in baptism. All right, so let's move on one more, very quickly, Moses, and then we'll have to take up David this afternoon. What do we see in Moses? And when we turn to Moses, we see some very much the same things. In the Sinaitic Covenant, there is much advanced in covenant administration as we see the law being given. But as we've already read in Galatians chapter 3, the, the law does not disannul the covenant God made with Abraham or the promise. The law was given as a mercy because the seed had, had been enslaved in Egypt, had taken on the form and ways of the Egyptians. And so God gave them the law at Sinai to recover them out of the mingling that they had done over the, however long it was, hundreds of years that they were in Egypt, whether 215 or 430, depending on which chronology you adhere to. The law was added, Paul says, because of transgressions until the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained of angels in the hand of a mediator, Moses. Now, a mediator is not a mediator of one, right? You can't have a one-sided mediation, in other words. The covenant was brought forward by an earthly mediator, Moses, and now the concept of a mediator is shown. We have the advancement of righteousness by faith alone and the imputation of righteousness given to Adam, I'm sorry, Abraham. See, see, I did it backwards too. And then in the days of Moses, we have the, we have the, the overt consequence of the necessity of a mediator. And that's when the people of God say, that God is scary, Moses, you go up there to Sinai and talk to him, and we don't want to go. And so Moses stands before the Lord. You see, at every stage then, what are we doing? We're opening up a little bit more. There's that, you know, that flower. I had the, the great pleasure of buying my wife flowers the other day. And they had these, uh, in, in, in the uh, bundle, they had these, these things that looked like this. Now they look like this, right? The Lord gives this statement of the covenant of grace to Adam and his family. It looks like this. Then in Noah, it looks like this. And then in Abraham, it looks like this. And then in Moses, it looks like this. And then in David, it looks like this. And then in Christ, I don't know how open I can get my hand. It's all the way open, right? And that all, all we're waiting for now is its consummation. Because all of the work that needs to be done is done. We're waiting for the Lord to draw in the last elect person. So what was the advancement then and what was the continuity? In Moses, we still had the principle of substitution, substitutionary atonement by sacrifice. We still had circumcision. In fact, the wilderness generation are known as sinful because they did not circumcise their children. Right? Um, we, have, we have the principle of the seed, right? That which is ongoing, uh, they will stand before the Lord in Deuteronomy chapter 29, and they will all enter into covenant. 
and those who are not here with us, Moses will say in Deuteronomy 29. There's still an ongoing seed and, and still that principle of nurture raising up a seed unto him. Now the, the sign continues upon the infants of that seed. And then also we have this expansion of the mediator. And I can just briefly tell you in David that all of those things remain. All the way through the life of David. You still have all of that continuity. And you have this added explosion of information. Now we have David as king. And his son as king. Reigning over not only the church. But eventually all things. Ask of me. And I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. So what have we seen? Very simply we've seen the covenant of grace in its seed form. Then we have seen it grow little by little by little at crucial places in the history of God's people as the Lord knew in his omniscience when it was time to expand the flower a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more to prepare them for the coming of Christ when that flower would be opened to its fullness. So the covenant of grace thus far uh, I had some uses written down, but I'm already 10 minutes over, so we'll, so we'll belay those until the next sermon, Lord willing. Let's stand and call upon the Lord. Our dear Heavenly Father, we come unto Thee, and we are thankful for Thy mercy. We are thankful for what we have seen thus far in these administrations of the covenant, that Thou didst enter into covenant with these men along these points of human history, revealing and opening and expanding and also continuing those promises and that covenant that thou didst make at the beginning, all reaching back to that promise of eternal life which was made before the world began. O oh Lord, we thank thee that we are the beneficiaries of that covenant even today, that we have seen that, that, uh, that covenant advanced in our day through the birth of a child, and that we stand here all this day as we enter into covenant and remain in covenant with Thee, that we are those covenanters with God through Jesus Christ, our elder brother. We thank Thee for the, for the promises of that covenant, for the sign of that covenant, for the grace of that covenant, for the benefits that accrue to us now and into eternity. And we thank Thee that Thy word is inviolable, that thou hast sworn upon thine own life. O oh Lord, we thank thee. And we pray that we might uh, uh, remember these things and that we might be greatly blessed by them. As we have heard that this covenant comes to us not by virtue of who we are, but by virtue of who thou art. So Lord, we pray, help us always to give thee all the glory. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.